Make yourselves comfortable. Go ahead and make yourselves comfortable. It's good to see you. And happy Easter. Or happy Resurrection Day if you struggle with the word Easter. Either way, it's good to have you here celebrating this day where Jesus removed the stinger from death, thereby becoming a firstborn of a great family, which is growing, and I am confident will grow today. Very excited to have you here. I'm very excited to be a part of Easter with this church family. So if you have a Bible, turn to Luke, Luke 24. That's going to be the passage that's going to just help us see Easter, help us see Jesus more clearly today. Luke 24. Some of you, if you're a guest here, you probably don't know this. It's not something I talk about all the time, but before I became a pastor, I was one foot in the medical school. I was headed to become a doctor in hopes of becoming a surgeon someday when the Lord rescued me, and within a year, I dropped out and became a full-time vocational campus minister. But in the time that I was studying really hard to be a doctor, I actually had a 3.98 GPA on a four-point system. I studied my tail off. I made one B in college. I was such a nerd back then, you know, wanting to be the best doctor in the universe. I was such a nerd that I studied the history of medical schools while I was trying to get into a medical school because that's what dorks do instead of hanging out with normal people doing normal things, right? But interestingly, there was this odd collaboration back in the day, back in like the 1800s, mid to late 1800s, where medical schools would procure bodies from the black market. So you'd have grave robberies going on. <laughs> Hold on a second. This happened last week. It didn't happen at all when we did our sound check. All right, can you guys hear me? Is that any better? Okay.
it's important for us because we have new life waiting for us. When you die someday, death will not be waiting in a casket, just a new life. A new life if you are buried in Christ. And this, is, this, this encourages me as being, just like many of you, part of God's Easter people, right? Because my body's going to die someday, and so is yours. It'll either decay just by use, age, car accidents will take some of us and maybe some of the people that we know. Disease will take many of us. Tragedy, listen, bombings at airports could very well take us. All of us will die, but not really. But not really. My body will perish. Now, we'll turn into dust and ashes, but, but not really, because we have good news that will be renewed. This is what Easter celebrates. The defeat of death. Jesus leading a new family with a new royal blood in it that death will no longer mock and death will no longer destroy. But what I'd look, like to just for a minute look at is what does Easter mean for us, God's people, next week? Maybe even the week after that, right? When all of the Easter candy is gone and all we have is wrappers left, and all the leftovers are starting to, you know, exit being eaten and start being thrown away. In a week or two, when everything is settled down, what do God's Easter people look like then? Because it has to change something. It's the idea of Easter. The idea of Easter, the reality of it is it changes us in the core, in our entirety. It has to do more than change our Sunday plans. It has to do more than change our lunch schedule after church or our wardrobe. It has to do more than give us an extra day or two off of work. It has to change our everything. An empty tomb changes everything. Changes everything. How do we look during the work day in the cubicle? On date night? How do we look as God's Easter people, and how is Easter relevant to us when we discipline our kids? When we're doing our taxes? When we're hanging on to our steering wheels for, for dear life? How does Easter change us? I think for the answer to this, I would like to do something that we've done the last two weeks, and that's go back into the storyline of Jonah. If you're a guest with us, or maybe you're not, but you haven't been in the last week or two, what we've done is we've taken the last two weeks to look at the death and the burial of Jesus today, saving today for the resurrection of Jesus. But we've used the story of Jonah to help bring some clarity to it. So two weeks ago, we looked at how some Basically, sinful sailors tossed Jonah over the side of a boat into stormy waters where he went into the belly of the deep. But in doing so, he stilled the waters for all the guilty people still on the ship. We saw how Jesus died to save the guilty people even on earth. But then the next week, last week, we looked at how he spent some time not in the belly of the deep, but in the belly of the whale. How we waited upon God's salvation and what that means for you and me. You can't finish the story of Jonah. You can't even go any further until you look at the second chapter in verse 10. So stay in Luke 24. We're going to put this on the screen. One sentence. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. So we've all heard this story so many times. Put yourself there. Walking on a beach. What are the things that immediately come to your mind? Walking on the beach. I immediately think of the smell. It smells different. The feel. Air just does things different when water is crashing up on the, on the sandy shores. I want you to imagine walking barefoot, right? 
with your pants tight rolled up to about here, like you see on TV, to keep all the sand out of your, out of your pants. And you're holding the hand of your, of your sweetie. And you're just looking at each other's eyes, hand in hand, taking in the moment. The sun is going down. It's like a postcard, but you don't even dare pull out your phone and take a picture because you just know you can't capture it, right? And then out of your left ear, you hear a hacking, like an emphysemic hack. And then a whale the size of a few school buses beaches itself and, and burps a human being out onto the beach, a human being who rolls around probably covered with goop and now sand and goop, because we know how that works, right? And scholars say possibly bleached out from the stomach acid of the whale, most definitely without any clothes on. You just saw this. You see, the ancients who understood what had happened after Jonah would relay this story would say one thing, surely that man was a dead guy. Surely he was dead. No one goes down into a whale and comes up. Surely this is God giving him new life. They would have seen death cheated. God body snatched Jonah right out of the whale, the great resurrectionist. See, what I love about the Bible, and this is actually one of the, the pillars of our faith and our, uh, what we believe about Jesus that led me to Christ when I became a Christian as a young man, the Bible has movement to it. It has movement. It's fascinating to me. Let me, as a picture of what kind of movements I'm talking about, my wife, for example, she's a fantastic interior decorator, right? And because she loves it so much, my daughters grow up with a little bit of an eye for it, right? So they're always talking about renovating things and punching holes in walls and flooring and paint. I went to, I went to Lowe's the other day with my girls, and while I'm getting dude stuff, they're picking as many color swatches as they can really get away with off, the, off of the paint section. They love that stuff. So whenever we're at home, if we're doing anything on Netflix, most likely it's got something to do with flipping a home, painting a wall, buying a house. That's just what they love. Whenever these people on the shows, when they pull a tile out, like a slate tile for a floor or a marble countertop, it has veins in it. They always talk about how the, the material has movement. Look at the veins and the pattern in this countertop. It has movement. Look at the cracks in the, in the shading in this tile. It has Movement, something that catches your eye and allows you to follow it. Movement. I think the Bible has fantastic movement to it. Not just chronological movement, let there be light, then the next second, then the next second, next year, next century, next millennia. Not just chronological movement, but movement where everything that God does moves itself and flows like a river towards the three days that changed all of human history, the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Those three fascinating scenes, those three pinnacle environments, that's the focus to which all of our eyes as God's Easter people, we flow with that and we see Jesus so clearly in so many places in the Bible. So no matter what book you're going through right now, no matter what passage you're looking at in the Bible, if you're looking at one, it falls on a trail, like a breadcrumb trail, ending up in either the death, the burial, or the resurrection, and many times all three. The Bible has fantastic movement. In fact, without these three days, all of Christianity falls unhinged. Without an empty tomb, it all comes apart, comes unwound. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 
chapter 15. We'll put this up on the screen as well. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. You see, the empty tomb is the linchpin of all Christianity. It is what holds it together and endorses what we believe. And because it was empty, because it was empty, folks, if you're in Jesus, you have nothing to be ashamed of. You are not to be pitied. Your faith is not in vain. You are not misrepresenting God. You are, in fact, reflecting his grace as you walk around part of his family. You see, empty tombs is a constant theme in the Bible. It's one of those rivers. It's one of the things that creates movement in the Bible. Just think for a moment as you think of Noah and his family being lifted above death and destruction as it sweeps underneath them. He escaped certain death. Moses, in a brand new nation, moving through a sea as death and destruction sweeps behind them but misses them. They escaped certain death. Joseph, being lifted out of a pit, later being lifted out of prison, being set at the right hand of the most powerful part of creation on earth at that time. He escaped certain death. You have Isaac being led up a mountain, carrying wood on his back, innocent, yet next to a father who would forsake him very shortly. But right before the knife goes in, he escapes certain death. You start to see the movement. Job, just a breath or two from death, just a breath or two, is rescued by God into a new season where he says, I used to hear about you, but now I see you. He beholds a beautiful God, even though that God afflicted him. He escaped certain death. We have Jonah vacating a watery grave, escaping certain death. We have Lazarus coming out of a tomb, only to use that tomb as, as really a road sign to point to a bigger tomb later on that would also be vacated. Lazarus himself escaped certain death. Do you see the trend over and over and over and over and over again? We see God saving his own creation from death, all pointing to a time where not just creation, but the creator would not just escape death, but defeat and destroy death. Becoming our great resurrection man. God is our great body snatcher, our great resurrectionist. And he empty tombs all the time. That's his business. It's God's business to empty tombs. His business is very good. Let's look at look. Luke 24, as you're already there, just follow along with me. There are four accounts of the Easter morning, and this is one of them. You can find this in all the Gospels, not just the, the first three synoptic ones, but even John. But in the second verse of Luke 2, we see it this way. And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. 
While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. So again, put yourself there. Put yourself there, right? You're walking. It's interesting because John says it's still dark. Mark says the sun's already coming up. But we all know that to be both true. It's dawn. Where it's always dark, but not really. The sun is starting to come up. And as they're walking, they're disheartened. The women, the disciples that that were coming to anoint Jesus with with all kinds of ointments to to basically bring uh, glory to him, even though he is dead. It's interesting because that's exactly what one of the wise men brought Jesus when he was born, pointing forward to this moment where he would also have ointments put on him, even by his own disciples, and they're disheartened, a deep, heavy ache. One of the questions in their mind is they don't even know how they're going to get that big rock wall open. How are they even going to get to Jesus? But to add to their hurt, to add to the heaviness that is in them is shock when they realize that an earthquake had already come and cracked the tomb in half. Luke states that there were two angels standing there in dazzling apparel. Matthew says that their apparel was so white it became the very definition of white. White as snow. It's the whitest white that could be conceived of in the ancient language. In fact, Matthew says they look like lightning. Two angels that look like lightning in clothes that have never been seen nor worn on earth. There would be no death on this day. There would be no dead bodies in that tomb. Just a couple guards that had passed out. And before the women could even form a question, the angels asked them a question. Why do you go looking for your king in graves? Why are you looking for the living among the dead? Why do you go scouting out your hero in the crypts, in the in the burial places of mankind. Why are you doing that? He's not here. He's not even here. He's gone. He even folded his clothes here. He's gone. These ladies, and later John and Peter, would find themselves not at the graveside of Jesus, but at the graveside of death. That's what was really there. Death is now defeated, not King Jesus. And out of their hearts come the same thing that Paul wrote to the first Corinthians, or in 1 Corinthians to the Corinthian church, where he says, death is swallowed up in victory. He's thinking of this as he's repeating what the Old Testament writers would say. He's repeating it, but in his heart, he's seeing it through the cross in the tomb, and he says, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? Which leads me back to our original question, which is, how can you celebrate Easter in the middle of June? What does Easter look like for you and your family the week before Thanksgiving? Or are we seriously going to wait another 51 weeks before Easter has any relevance to us at all? What does it look like? How do we look every day of the year as God's Easter people? I have two things to suggest, and then we're done. One is that we too, we stop looking for the living among the dead. We stop looking for our king among graves. 
What I mean by that is this. The grave is where failed religion is found. Okay? That's where Mohammed is right now. He's in the grave. He's dust. Any other religious leader that was ever born into man is in the grave now. Not only them, not only the little cult leaders, not only all, but even the people that followed them, they're in the grave now. Jesus will not be found there. Jesus is not going to be confused with dead religion. Dead religion is a little bit more than just world religions, by the way. Dead religion is something that you and I can easily partake in just like that. Or we even for an instant rely on our own behavior, our own performance to climb some weird ladder in our mind that says you are more appealing to God, more justified before God because you do these things. And it takes so many odd shapes and it is seeping into our being ever since the womb that it's such a hard thing to even see sometimes. If you feel like you're able to checklist things off, Christmas, check. Easter, check. Calm group, check. Khaki pants, check. Whatever you want to check. If you think that when you do those things, God looks at you and says, there you go. That's what I was waiting for. One down, 998 to go, but you're almost there. Keep checking things. It's dead religion. You're looking for Jesus in tombs. The dead vestiges of what we come up with is mankind. You will not find him there. Dead religion says that unless you perform well, you don't even belong here in church. You can come, but you have to fake it. You have to look like you belong, even though you know deep down inside you don't really belong. Church is the good place where all the good people show up to listen to a good person tell everyone else how to be much, much gooder, right? But you don't belong because you're not good. That's what the lie is. Anyway, it, the, the opposite couldn't even be more true. We are not here because of our performance. We are here because of the performance of another who behaved where we seriously could not behave. He performed where we could never perform. He obeyed where we constantly rebelled. Scotty Smith says it this way. He says, the only thing we bring to Jesus is our need, our need. All we offer, he says, is the admission that we have nothing to offer. You see, God does this beautiful thing with his church totally despite our ability to be any part in it. We have no ability to contribute to God's work on the cross, tomb, and resurrection. We can't chip in. We cannot help. In Ephesians 2, it says this. It'll be up on the screen. Stay where you're at. For by grace you have been saved through faith. We've heard this many times, many of you. And this not of your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. You see, this collides with dead religion. This collides with the many ideas that are now in the grave where Jesus will not be found. I actually found another translation of this in the J.B. Phillips translation, which is a favorite of mine. And he says it this way. I will put it all up on the screen. I doubt many of you have that in your lap. It is, remember, by grace and not by achievement that you were saved and has lifted us right out of the old life to take our place with him and Christ in the heavens. Thus he shows for all time the tremendous generosity of the grace and kindness he has expressed towards us in Christ Jesus. It was nothing you could or did achieve. 
It was God's gift to you. No one can pride himself upon earning the love of God. The fact is that we are, or that what we are, we owe to the hand of God upon us. I like the texture of that translation because it shows the real backbone to what grace is, which is God's favor to you. He gives you gift. It's, a fa- it's favor. It's his love. It's his kindness. It's his beauty. He gives it to you. Regardless of whether you take it and throw it down, regardless of whether you take it and you try to earn it, regardless of whether you spike it out of his hand and try to run the other way, regardless of that, he gives it to you, despite you. And we're allergic to that. We're allergic to grace. We resist it. We'll have nothing to do with it. The grave is full of those who resist grace to the end. Full. You won't find Jesus there. The grave is full of people who have used their own sweat, their own toil, and their own brilliance to try to climb some odd mountain or ladder to God. But the living is found where we trust Jesus, who left the tomb after he sweat and toiled, part of God's brilliant plan for you and me. It's grace. Some of you, if you hear anything today, some of you, if you hear anything today, hear this, Jesus is different than anything you've ever encountered before. Jesus is different from anyone you've ever met. He's incomparable. And you may have sat down expecting to be read the riot act on how you need to start showing up to church and not just on Easter and not just Christmas. As soon as you sat down, you're probably bracing yourself for that. It's not coming. I'm not going to tell you to do any of that. I just want to point the way to a beautiful king who has done something beautiful for mankind and just implore you. I would do anything I could to get you to do this. If If it just meant me grabbing a bucket of water and just throwing it on you, and that's what it meant to get you saved, I would do it. I would do anything but I'm imploring you to worship the king who has beat death at his cost for your benefit as a grace to you. If you've decided to go and follow dead religion and just see Jesus as a dead wise wise scholar, you can go to the tombs, but he won't be there. He is gone. He is alive. Romans 8, 11, it says this, and this will be up on the screen as well. If the Spirit of Him, this is the Holy Spirit, so whenever it says Spirit, it's God's Spirit. If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. So this is my second and my last point. With the same Spirit that resurrected Jesus, we see life come to our mortal frames. In other words, we can change. If, if God, by his Holy Spirit, can turn death into life, then he can most certainly take you wherever you're at and bring change. You can change. Not because you're awesome. Not because your pastor's telling you how to change. Not because you got a hold of a good book. It's because the Holy Spirit is in you. The same Holy Spirit, the Bible says, the same Spirit of God that raised Jesus from the dead. You know, and I think it's important, probably important to say every Easter, it wasn't a spirit that came forth from the tomb. It was a physical body. It's a physical body. His body came back. So it says, that I, I read this the other day from John Updike. He says, make no mistake, if he rose at all, it was in the body. If the cell's dissolution did not reverse, the molecules re 
the amino acids rekindle. If those things didn't happen, the church will fall. But he did, because that's what it means to defeat death. I say this because I see reports from time to time online, certainly the same ones you see, about how some archaeologist somewhere found Jesus' femur or his toe bone or something like that to prove that he really died and he didn't come back to life. It, come on, it's total garbage. It's, you're better off reading whatever is going on with the Kardashians at the time than you are reading about Jesus' femur. There's no Jesus' femur anywhere. I don't know where that came from. His whole body came forth from death because of God's spirit. And if Jesus' mortal frame was animated by God's grace, then we too have the exact same spirit coming to life in us as we become new creations. The exact same spirit. And this spirit, this Holy Spirit, is the spark of change. That's how we change. You literally cannot change from the inside out unless the Holy Spirit is doing this in you. This is good news. It should encourage you that you can change. Some of you need that encouragement because you don't believe it. You don't think you can change. You think you're too screwed up. No matter how screwed up you are, and some of you are super duper screwed up, right? No matter how screwed up you are, you are not further from change than death is from life. And it's the same Holy Spirit that's doing all the heavy lifting there. So as we peer into the depths of our lives, and we see all of the, I guess, the grime and the sleaze, I don't think that freaks us out as much as the potential to be worse than what we already see. I think the possibility that we could be even grosser than what we already see is even more frightening than what we see. It's the stuff that we hope no one ever sees. It's the stuff that we hope never comes true in our life, but we know deep down we have the potential to do it. Some of us are very convinced that not even Jesus, not even God's Spirit can take us from that place, capable of so much, and bring us to something that looks a little bit closer to Him. Yet we have empty tombs everywhere. We have empty tomb in Jesus showing that the Holy Spirit defeats death by the power of God, and will do the same in you and me, will bring change. That God is our great resurrectionist. And he is the great body snatcher. Then he can take your grime and wipe it off. He can take you and he can bring change. It's important that you hear that. In fact, there's a passage, I was reading it to myself this morning a little bit in Romans 6. Paul does a good job of this. It doesn't even require really any teaching. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. That means you can change. That means you can change. Verse 8, now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died once for all. But the sin, or but the life he lived, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God and Christ Jesus. You know, Knoxville is full of people that are either looking for life where places 
the debt, only hangouts. They're looking for answers. They're looking for substance in the grave. And then we have people who fear that they can never change. But Easter leads us in a different place, doesn't it? Easter leads us to a place on a beach where a prophet escaped certain death. Easter leads us to a family coming out of an ark as death swept underneath them. Easter leads us to a place where we see Isaac, a son, coming down a mountain, arm in arm with his father, both thankful, both worshiping God. Easter leads us to a place with some confused women, some excited disciples, as there's just some clothes laying on a table. And Jesus is not there. He is alive. Some of you, as you leave and as we worship today, I want you to consider what it means for you to change what it means to have the Holy Spirit dwelling in you. And then some of y'all want you to, to look at and consider where it is that you are going for answers and for life. And it, may it not be found in the crypts and the tombs or what we have in the world to offer. You know, there is a, there's a tradition I'd like to start. We actually started it last year, and I enjoyed it so much, and it's such a powerful thing. I'd love to do it. We don't have very many traditions as a church. We're still kind of young. We have like chili cook-offs and campouts and stuff like that. But as a family grows, it develops traditions. I felt like this would be a good one to add. Last year, we read a piece of a sermon, just a small little speck of a sermon from Miletus of Sardis. And it's actually a piece from the earliest Easter sermon ever found. It was written in 167 A.D. So if you just indulge me with this, if you could stand up with me. We're going to do something where I'm going to read to you as you reflect on the words. And then at one point, I'm going to ask you to read with me. Okay? Are we ready to do this? It doesn't take much choreography. I want you to reflect. Consider what God has done. This is Jesus. When the Lord had clothed himself with humanity and had suffered for the sake of the sufferer, and had been bound for the sake of the imprisoned, and had been judged for the sake of the condemned, and buried for the sake of the one who was buried. He rose up from the dead and cried aloud with this voice, Who is he who contends with me? Let him stand in opposition to me. I set the condemned man free. I gave the dead man life. I raised up the one who had been entombed. Who is my opponent? I, he says, am the Christ. I am the one who destroyed death and triumphed over the enemy and trampled Hades underfoot and bound the strong one and carried off man to the heights of heaven. I, he says, am the Christ. Therefore come, all families of men, you who have been befouled with sins and receive forgiveness for your sins. I am your forgiveness. I am the Passover of your salvation. I am the Lamb which was sacrificed for you. I am your ransom. I am your light. I am your savior. I am your resurrection. I am your king. I'm leading you up to the heights of heaven, and I will show you the eternal father. I will raise you up by my right hand. Read with me. This is the one who made the heavens and the earth, who in the beginning created man, who was proclaimed through the law and prophets, who became human, via the virgin, who was hanged upon a tree, who was buried in the earth, who was resurrected from the dead, who ascended to the heights of heaven, who sits at the right hand of the Father, 
who has the authority to judge and to save everything, through whom the Father created everything from the beginning of the world to the end of the age. This is the Alpha and the Omega. This is the beginning and the end, an indescribable beginning and an incomprehensible end. This is the Christ. This is the King. This is Jesus. This is the General. This is the Lord. This is the one who rose up from the dead. This is the one who sits at the right hand of the Father. He reveals the Father and is revealed by the Father. To whom be the glory and the power forever. Amen. Amen and happy Easter. I love you all. Let me pray for you. Father, I thank you for being so kind and so good to snatch a body from me. Not to ransom that body off, but because that body was a ransom for me. Lord, Easter is more than just one day a year. Easter is our reality. It is who we are. Easter is what defines the very faith that we rest on and the very words that come out of our mouth. Lord, let it change us from the inside out. Let it change us so that we sin no longer. Not because it pleases you, not because it's another box to be checked, but because you checked all the boxes for us. Father, remind us that we can change today, not to impress you because you are impressed with your own son. Lord, lead us away from the various graves and coffins and caskets and tombs that bark that they have life when there is no life to be found. They look so enticing. They look like they'll meet all of our needs, but you are not there. You are gone. You are alive. And Father, I know that there are people here and there are people in this city sitting in churches all over who they rest in this world alone. And you say in 1 Corinthians that those who trust in the world alone are to be pitied. Father, I know I am not to be pitied for the faith I put in you, but I know there are people in here who are to be pitied. They are, because there is no life waiting for them. Just death. There are no answers, just more questions. There is no change, just new masks to put on to look like we're changing. But God, you were different. You rescue us as a grace to us. As a grace. Lord, I didn't deserve it. We didn't deserve it. We didn't earn it. We're not paying it off. You've done something so brilliant, so out of this world. And we're very thankful and we worship you because you're very thankful people. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. Amen.